This is Florida Matters. I'm Robin Sessingham. While we prepare to welcome 2020, we take some time to reflect on the past year. This week, we take a listen to some of the most memorable episodes from 2019. This is Florida Matters 2019 Year in Review. Tampa Mayor Jane Castor served on Tampa's police force for 31 years, becoming the first female police chief in 2009. Tampa voters chose her to become their mayor in a runoff election against the late David Straz in April. I spoke with the then newly elected mayor about her vision for Tampa and what she thought were the biggest issues facing the city. We've grown slowly over the last couple of decades. And now it just seems that this city is really on fire right now. And it's a very, very exciting time. It is the most exciting time of my adult life. I've said more than once that this city is going to change more in the next 10 years than it has in my entire lifetime. And we have a very unique opportunity here. We have the opportunity to create the city that we want, you know, a city we want to live and work in and a city we'll be proud to pass off to the next generation. So that growth is really exciting in it a lot exciting. of ways. And there's some transformational development going on in downtown mm-hmm. Tampa. But what are the problems that you see mm-hmm. with some of that growth? Well, the issues that I'm going to focus on with the growth, first and foremost, is transportation. That is our biggest issue issue here, our Achilles heel, not just in Tampa or Hillsborough County, but in the entire Tampa Bay area. And as I have said in the past, we never lacked for good ideas in transportation. We lacked for funding. So with the All for Transportation, we'll be able to implement some of those transportation solutions while taking care of the issues that need to be addressed. Maintenance in our roads, repaving, uh, lighting our streets up to make them safer, a comprehensive sidewalk plan that starts at the schools and moves out from there. So there's a lot of things that we can focus on in the transportation area. Other areas that I will be focusing on, affordable housing. That is something that Tampa, we were built by immigrants and we are a very, very diverse city and we're a city that embraces that diversity. So the last thing that we can have is people priced out of the city of Tampa. Everyone should be able to live in a home that they can be proud of in a neighborhood that they want to be in here in Tampa. And so a very, very laser focus on affordable housing and then workforce development as well. We'll we'll get into some of those things, but I want to go back to transportation for a moment. That is one of the issues closest to your Mm -hmm. heart, I think. And you are serving now on the board of the Hillsborough Area Regional Transit Authority, HART. Yes. So you're the first mayor in 16 years to serve Mm -hmm. on that board, and you wanted to serve on that board personally, I think for one reason, because they're going to be coming into quite a bit of money, the All for Transportation referendum, which raised the sales tax in Hillsborough County to fund transit, Mm -hmm. is going to be coming online. So Mm -hmm. there's going to be a lot of money involved in this, and were you hoping for greater oversight of the board by by sitting on it personally? Right. Well, it's, you know, transportation is one of the the main focuses in our city right now. So to me, uh, it was logical to be a part of the Heart Board. I believe that our bus system 
is in essence going to be reinvented. They're going to have the funding necessary to do that, which will translate into reliable bus service to neighborhoods that have never seen it before. And then looking at, you know, our streetcars, ways that we'll be able to provide those transportation solutions. I want to be a part of that. So you talked about bus service. In addition to traditional bus service and providing more routes mm-hmm. and a more frequent routes, Yes. there's also this plan for bus rapid transit. Yes. Do you see that coming online with these funds? I do. That is a solution that's been talked about for over a decade. And I believe that there are still a few issues that need to be flushed out with that. But we need some type of a transit system that will connect Pinellas County, Hillsborough County, and Pasco County. So bus rapid transit is sort of like a train on the road. In other yes. words, it would be a dedicated lane. stops, yes. dedicated mm-hmm. lane. But as you said, it's been talked about for a long time. Things kind of move slowly in this They area. do in transportation. I know. it, uh, And it, it's a little frustrating. I had a conversation about transportation the other day. And, you know, some possibilities of east-west connectors and expansion in other areas. And uh, someone said, well, you know, we'll get an environmental study done in three or four years. And I was thinking, oh, it's more along the lines of we're going to have the solution in place in three or four years. That was Tampa Mayor Jane Castor. In a conversation with Ed Childs, we spoke about how the seafood industry has changed in Florida. Ed is the son of the late Governor Lawton Childs. He owns several seafood restaurants and is the founder of the Gulf Shellfish Institute in Manatee County. I asked Ed about the water quality surrounding the Terracia Aquatic Preserve. Tampa Bay in our area has a little bit too high of salinity for oysters. They want a little bit more fresh water mixed in but it's perfect for clams, right? So nutrient level, water quality, and water temperature, this is as good a place as any place in the world to grow clams. Warmer water grows clams twice as fast. So you think about that for the efficiency and for what it costs the guy to bring that crop up. But we really need to be doing things to incentivize our clam farmers. Let's look at the big five of aquaculture. Shrimp, salmon, tilapia, catfish, all of those have environmental issues. Waste stream, antibiotics, hormones. Bivalves have zero negative environmental impact. Conversely, they have a huge environmental positive Mm -hmm. impact, right? They filter. Mm -hmm. And small clams filter five gallons of water a day. And large broodstock clams filter 25 gallons a day. So what happened in the red tide for the clam farmers? The clam farmers like Carter Davis down in Pine Island, who's Kurt Himmel's protege, his clams have stayed on the bottom too long because of red tide closures, and they've gotten too big. Those big clams don't have the value. He's not going to plant another crop if his crop he couldn't get paid for it this year. So what we've said through a program that we did with the Community Redevelopment Authority in Braden Beach is, We did a project to plant clams, and there's been a lot of that lately. And we said, now we're going to realize that the value of that big, large, heavy, thick-shelled broodstock clam that'll filter 25 gallons of water a day, the value to the citizens of Florida is that clam to stay in the water. 
that's one of the programs that we're working on so with the Shellfish Institute. So you're trying to get the Institute. state to buy some of those clams to use? We're saying for- to the state, this farmer doesn't have an insurance policy, mm-hmm. right? There's no safety net up under him. We need clams. We need to clean water. We need to promote seagrass. If we're going to heal the Gulf of Mexico, what's coming in the, from the Mississippi, we can't do anything about. But we sure can do something, and we are doing things in our area and with the Gulf Shellfish Institute to make sure that this precious place that is the nursery for the Gulf of Mexico will become more healthy, and bivalves are one of the major ways that you do that. We're serving these clams in our restaurant, but we're also recognizing the value of putting in the water and leaving it and let them grow up bigger and bigger and bigger and produce a lot more clams. Become part of the ecosystem. To become part of the ecosystem. Let me ask you, um, in your role as restaurant owner, I'm really interested in where are you getting your seafood? We get it from uh, local fishermen and six or seven different seafood distributors like Sammy's in St. Pete. So we went from all, uh, you know, mostly imported shrimp to all, almost all domestic shrimp now. You know, most of the crab that you see is the blue swimmer crab, and that comes from Asia. But we worked hard, and we found a supplier down in Pine Island that can get us fresh-picked crab now. But you've got to work on that. Mm-hmm. So what can you get locally? How long have you got? <laughs> right? A lot of these things are underutilized and not appreciated, but they're fabulous. Mullet, mackerel, sheephead, whiting. Amberjack, kingfish, snapper, grouper, clams. Are these all on your menu? And I'm missing a bunch, every single one of them. In season, I guess. Well, just when, you know, you don't get the whiting all the time. We get that rarely, but we love to serve it. You know, we get kingfish right now. We've got kingfish hanging now. We're dry aging kingfish. Come have some grouper collars for $14. It's the best meat on a grouper. And I threw it away for 35 years. So now I take those collars and I show people what a good, you know, and eat that fin, that crispy fin from the outside down. My job is to promote local, sustainable, underutilized seafood and show that by doing that, I can fill seats and I can do well and do right at the same time. How expensive is selling seafood like that versus buying from a distributor salmon or some of the fish you can get from Vietnam or China? Well, it's, uh, it's certainly a lot more expensive. You know, that's why so much of that seafood comes from Asia, because it's cheap. You know, what they're doing when they set out to do it and their efficiency at doing it because nobody's saying no and the labor is super cheap, and they've gotten way ahead. They want to control that. They're smart. Mm-hmm. So you're saying we just can't keep up with the demand. That's why we're importing so much. We can absolutely keep up with the demand. We need to ramp up the production. We need to get in the game. If we can incentivize clam farmers, that's economic development. That's our heritage. That's working waterfront. I'm ready to go start my clam farm. That was restaurant owner Ed Childs. July marked the 50th anniversary of the Apollo 11 moon landing. To mark the event, PBS stations aired a six-hour documentary called Chasing the Moon, which chronicled America's space race leading up to the first lunar landing and beyond. I caught up with Robert Stone, who wrote, directed, and produced Chasing the Moon. He joined us from his home in Hudson Valley, New York. You know, we went into uh, nearly 100 different film archives to source material for this film. So it go- we went way beyond the NASA collection. There's no talking heads. There's no narration. 
It's uh, we did audio only interviews with about 12 characters who guide us through this whole venture who were there. And we really use a lot of contemporaneous news accounts of what was going on. So you see and hear this uh, adventure unfolding almost in real time as it was happening. So um, we don't have this sort of seesaw back and forth between past and present. It's, it's, un- it's very immediate. And so you experience the, 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 the pitfalls and the sidetracks and the, the various directions that it could have gone or was seen to be going uh, at the time, which you might, might be overlooked if you just looked back at it in this sort of retrospective way that most histories do, as you said, you know, where it just seems, okay, well, they landed on the moon, so you only focus on the points X, Y, Z that got you to the moon and, and sort of forget about all the other interesting things along the way that uh, didn't pan out. And it's the things that didn't pan out that are I find to be some of the most extraordinary things, like the prospect of a joint Russian-American mission to the moon. Uh, the Kennedy administration also wanted to have an African-American astronaut on the moon and, and uh, recruited him into the space program. This amazing man, Ed Dwight, who we profile. Um, we also uh, spent a lot of time with the first and only woman to serve in Apollo mission control. And we detail an extraordinary story um, during Apollo 11 that's really never been told, which is uh, the story of this unmanned mission that the Russians launched at the same time as Apollo 11 and and went to the moon at the same time as the uh, Apollo 11 astronauts. Um, I don't want to give too much away about that, but it's uh, it's an incredibly riveting story that's been almost entirely forgotten, a kind of man versus machine last minute Hail Mary that the Russians pulled off. So you did quite a bit of research. I'm just wondering how your view of the space race and the moon landing and the whole project, how did your view of all of that change during the five years that you were working on this? Well, I learned so many things that I didn't know. I mean, I had a a pretty good understanding, I thought, of, of what happened. But our research revealed so many new things. And I think part of that came from really looking at the contemporaneous news accounts and, and watching this thing unfold as it was reported at the time, that we, um, we just came across a lot of stories that had just been completely forgotten, that were really critical to how the space race was perceived at the time. And we ended up, we, we discovered so much new material that um, we ended up writing a companion book too which goes into much further detail. I mean, and one of the most fascinating things is the career of Werner von Braun, who's the, uh, the German rocket scientist who was a former uh, uh, colonel in Hitler's SS who came to the United States, teamed up with Walt Disney, sold the idea of, of human space travel to the American public, uh, launched America's first successful satellite, and sold President Kennedy on the idea of putting a man on the moon. He's one of the most fascinating characters of the 20th century, and he's sort of the through line to the series. So let's talk about him a little bit. He actually designed, he was a brilliant rocket scientist. He designed the rockets that were used in the Apollo program, and we sort of owe him for for winning the space race, if you will, with the Soviets. And he had worked for the Germans during World War II, creating rockets against us. But... We sort of, um, well, we needed him, and so we forgave him. Yes. Well, you know, uh, von Braun was a sort of aristocratic German nobleman, really, who was fascinated by space travel as a kid 
and started building rockets as a teenager. And uh, he was recruited um, by the German army to build ballistic missiles and met Hitler personally and, and sold Hitler on the idea that this was some sort of super weapon that would win the war when Hitler bought the whole thing hook, hook, line, and sinker. Of course, it was a complete failure as a weapon, and it was extre extremely expensive at lobbing one single bomb you know, across the English Channel to London. But uh, it did pave the way for all future rockets and, and advance the whole field of rocketry uh, immeasurably. And after World War II, he and his entire band of, of rocket scientists, or most of them at least, the leading ones, all surrendered to the United States. They were brought here and put to work by the U.S. Army to eventually build um, the Intercontinental Ballistic Missile. The Soviets got some lesser-ranked German scientists who built their rockets and their first ICBMs, and the race, the race for, for rocket development was on. But, you know, von Braun was much more than, um, than just a brilliant scientist. He was an incredible showman. He was incredibly charismatic. And he had that rare combination of ability to be a great salesman and was also a great uh, scientist and a, and a great manager of, of, of vast operations. So he had a rare combination. I don't think he was a, you know, an ideological Nazi, but you know, he was an opportunist who would take money from whoever was in power so he could build his rockets. We'd be that Adolf Hitler or the U.S. Army or, you know, anybody. But his ultimate desire was to send people to the moon and Mars and go off to other planets. That was his dream. That was writer, director, and producer Robert Stone. You're listening to Florida Matters. I'm Robin Sussingham. We're taking a short break, and we'll be right back. I'm Robin Sussingham, and you're listening to Florida Matters. We're revisiting some of the most compelling discussions we featured in 2019. Citrus has shaped this state's identity for 100 years, but it's been a tough 10 years with freezes, hurricanes, developmental pressure, and worst of all, citrus greening. Last May, I spoke with panelist Mike Sparks, the CEO of Florida Citrus Mutual, and Kevin Buffard, a senior reporter at The Ledger. Mike, let's talk about research a little bit. Um, you've talked to me about the fact that research now is going from the laboratory to behind the tractor. What does that mean? Well, we're very hopeful that this season we'll launch a major program around the uh, state of Florida, the CRAFT program, Citrus Research and Field Trials. Uh, there were some dollars uh, available from the state of Florida. The United States Department of Agriculture has already uh, committed dollars as well as the Citrus Research and Development Foundation. And what this program would do is be a huge demonstration. Maybe over two years, 5,000 acres around the state of Florida, Southwest Florida, Indian River, Central Florida, Polk County, and major blocks of 20, 40, 100 acre blocks where a grower can select from a menu of research activities, use the best management practices we have from research, couple that with the grower ingenuity, the plant higher densities, the proper nutritional sprays to keep cost where he can make a profit, and then demonstrate how effective those grow plantings are. And at the end of the day, how much fruit can we produce per acre? The program could last as long as six or seven years, 
But I can tell you the growers that are in the industry, as soon as they see a certain research trials working, they don't need to wait till the ultimate research report. They will follow up yeah. with additional plantings. And that's how we'll get the Florida citrus industry back in a level of production that we were, were a decade ago. So, Kevin, um, I heard about, or when I was out at the Citrus Research Foundation, I saw a trial of grapefruit trees that were being grown under a large screen. That seemed to be showing a lot of promise. It is, and it's an up-and-coming method of growing citrus. Uh, It's called CUPS, Citrus Under Protective Screens. I had arranged to do a story on a big grower in Lake Wales who had established, and that was before Irma, and Irma pretty much wiped him out. So there's that risk. The other issue with cups is that it's very expensive to establish. Mm -hmm. We're talking like, uh, as I understand it, something like $20,000 an acre. Oh, gosh. Which is, uh, again, maybe about three, four times what it would just to put it in the ground. Uh, But it does work. It keeps the psyllids away. It keeps the trees uninfected. Uh, It produces fruit. The growers need that price in order to make it work. And we're not seeing that this year. That was Florida Citrus Mutual CEO Mike Sparks and reporter Kevin Buffard. Former Senator Bill Nelson recently spoke at Southeastern University in Lakeland, where the new American Center for Political Leadership presented Nelson with an award for his long public service. It was a rare public appearance for Nelson since Rick Scott narrowly defeated him in last year's Senate race. In a conversation with the ACPL's director, former Congressman Dennis Ross, and with former State Senator Rick Dantzler, Nelson, a Democrat, spoke of the importance of personal relationships among politicians. Rick Dantzler kicked off the conversation. Uh, One of the questions that I had kind of right out of the gate, uh, when you were running in your last election, I went to an event for you in Orlando, and I heard you make the comment that in this political environment, as crazy as it seems, up is down and down is up. And I thought about that a lot, and I wonder what you meant by that. Because it is. (laughs) I mean, what you would normally expect in the body politic of the functioning of the Constitution, the gentlemanly way that in order to carry on a dialogue in the public discourse, in the public arena, there has to be a a modicum of civility. And we don't see a lot of that. And it's getting worse. And it didn't just start with this last administration. Uh, I've seen it very much change over the 18 years that I was in the Senate. I've especially seen it change since those early days of going to the state legislature where All of us would go up there, and uh, those of us who had young children uh, would all bring them up for the two months of the session, and we'd rent apartments, and our kids would be in and out of everybody else's apartment, and it didn't make any difference whether you were an R or a D. We were all friends, and then we'd go out at, at night for supper, 
And that was an accepted way of doing the public's business. Now, that was back in the dark ages. <laughs> uh, that was in the 70s. And, uh, and yet, I, I saw that uh, continue in my days in the house. For example, Tip O'Neill, the speaker, and Bob Michael, the top Republican, they'd fight like cats and dogs, but at the end of the day, they were personal friends. And so when it came time to do the deal, taught in college campuses about public service, one of the case studies is 1983. Social Security was within six months of going bankrupt. The president was Ronald Reagan. The speaker was Tip O'Neill. Two old Irishmen that used to fight all the time. But they had a personal friendship too. And they decided, we're going to solve this. Now, Social Security was a deadly issue. If you dare voted on any cuts on Social Security, you can be sure that your opponent in the next election was going to take you out. But Social Security was going bankrupt in six months. Those two old Irishmen got together and they said, uh, we're going to solve this thing and we're going to take it off the table in the next election as something to beat your opponent over the head with. They said, we're going to appoint a special blue ribbon committee. They're going to come back and report to the Congress. We passed it overwhelmingly. It made Social Security that was almost bankrupt, financially sound, actuarially sound for the next half century. Now, there is a good example of getting something done and something successfully. But can you imagine that being done today? So you see the changes that have occurred, and it all comes back to the personal relationship and how do you get along with each other. Uh, I told uh, Bill Rufty earlier tonight I said, uh, go back and see what Marco Rubio said immediately after my farewell address. And one of the things that he told, funny things, that the Senate just broke up laughing when he said this. He said, you know the worst thing Bill Nelson ever said about me? He said I was a moderate. <laughs> That's good. And, and so, you know, that's the kind of relationship that we need. That was former Senator Bill Nelson. Thanks to all of you who have tuned in during 2019 and shared your support with WUSF. You can find all of the shows featured in this episode on our website, WUSFnews.org. Just click the Florida Matters tab. Florida Matters is also available as a podcast. Search for it wherever you get your podcasts. Florida Matters is a production of WUSF Public Media. The producer is Christy O'Shauna. I'm Robin Sussingham. Thanks for listening.